I am a human being and I kill human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent is Jared Labiskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2006. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. It is lovely to be back. Um, as you may have noticed, we took a bit of a break for like a year. <laughs> Gerard. Hello, Gerard. How are you? Fine yourself, Paul. It's very nice to see you. I've been, I see a fair amount of you, um, mm. but um, people haven't been um, hearing a lot from you or from myself um, as we have not been recording episodes. Um, but we're back and um, we're here and we're going to be um, hopefully churning out a whole lot of new content for folks to listen to and enjoy around your particular area of expertise, which is um, kind of murdered people, <laughs> mm. really. So how have you been doing, Jared? What have you been up to the last year? Well, let me see. The last year, um, the the book obviously has come out. Uh, I think we did mention that right towards the end of one of our last episodes that were on air. I think we touched on the fact that there was a book coming or on its way out. We did, we did. We were, gonna, we, we were supposed to give one away, I think, still. So we'll have to figure out who we're supposed to give that away to and give it away to them. We can get to that because we've got lots of things to talk about. So that, yeah, that came out in March and has been, obviously with COVID, one couldn't have book launches really um, when it came out initially. I think I did eventually do one, two at sort of exclusive books, one in Pretoria and one in Johannesburg. This is, of course, Gerard's first book, The Profiler Diaries, from the case files of a police psychologist, which, like Gerard says, has been available in bookstores and is available. in. How many times have they reprinted it? I think it's now the the fifth or sixth time they've reprinted. Okay, so, so it's doing good. You know, in South Africa, because not a lot of people buy books. So so they kind of look at, let's print a thousand or one and a half thousand, see how that goes, then we yeah. print some more. So they kind of print little bits as the sales continue. And, and I think we're now on about ten or 11,000 books. So the publishers were very happy about that because they say in South Africa, if they sell two and a half thousand book of a local book, that's for them you know, worth it and it's a worthwhile endeavor and they mm-hmm. think that, that they regard it as a success. So currently we're standing on kind of four times that. So that they were very happy. I'm happy that it wouldn't didn't end up in the bargain bin. Um, yeah. Well, not still, yet. Anyway. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> and it's still going. So and it's really nice. The feedback has been ninety nine point nine percent good. And we can touch on some of the shitty ones that I've come across because <laughs> they're quite funny to actually read. I'm, um, that's what I'm most looking forward to today. Today we're going to just kind of have a bit of a catch up and touch base and talk a bit about Gerald's book and talk about some of the cases in the book um, and some of the response to it and um, just generally um, kind of have a bit of a catch up conversation mm-hmm. on crime and um, what's been going down in South Africa and what's been keeping you busy. On that point, how did you manage living through a pandemic? Well, the book is, is one of the ways I lived through it. I mean, I, it was literally started writing it when that first 
initial hard lockdown that South Africa started in March, what, 27th of March, 2020, that kind of gave me the time to write the book. So that was, I suppose I can say I can appreciate COVID for that, if anything. Mm. Um, so that kept me busy. And then obviously as things opened up, you know, then my normal work, which is consulting to corporates and some court cases sort of did start to pick up. Uh, and then as you know, kind of last year, we were doing quite a bit of, you know, documentary stuff, which we'll get into in a moment. Yeah. Um, and it was really that. So kind of like having a finger in lots of different pies, which is, is fun and interesting for me. Um, and also, I think the way of the world nowadays, you know, people don't necessarily just have the one job that they do. They do multiple things. And that, I think, is a, allows you to find more rewarding things to do and hopefully make money out of it. Yes. Just generally, I mean, if you look at your life now compared to when you were at the police and, you know, you're not that kind of deeply involved in crime and cases and what have you. On a personal level, how, how is that for you? Do, you? do you kind of miss the adrenaline of being in the police and, you know, re- rushing off to a crime scene? Yeah, I think I did in the first couple of years that I'd left. That sort of fun, the, the funness, the exciting, the camaraderie, traveling the country, etc. Um, I think now I'm kind of very more appreciative of a kind of a more relaxed lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time by myself, you know, work from home you know, do solitary things like swim, you know, so walk my dog. So I, I, I kind of do Bury appreciate that. in the garden. <laughs> Bury people but in the we're convinced. <laughs> we're, we, we'll talk about the work we do, but we're convinced here that Jared's got a dark, a dark hidden side. Carry on. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and so I like the fact that, you know, life is calmer, more peaceful. I think physically I'm more healthy than I was when I was working in the police, that's for sure. And I think psychologically... Um, you know, yeah. just feeling much more relaxed, definitely less stressed out. I think the police one is always just because of the workload. You just feel like you can't get to do everything and get everything done and more work comes in, etc. So I think it's nice not to have that kind of continuous pressure that's always on you. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it makes for a much more healthy lifestyle and, and psychological health. Yeah, sure. As you've touched on, we've been making TV shows. That's kind of a big part of the reason that we haven't been recording podcasts, which is silly. We should have been recording podcasts and we apologize. I mean, we, I get up regularly and kind of kick myself for not being more proactive to keep recording episodes. But then I'm like, oh, I've got 10 episodes of TV series to work on and edit. Um, so we've been working on some series. One of the things actually we were touching on on one of the series, which is called Killer Profiles, which is a series which kind of unpacks crimes from a psychologist's perspective. So we got Gerard and his colleagues to talk about um, crimes from a from a psychologist, very much trying to be kind of a science show, if you like, the science, the science of psychology. And, yeah. and um, you know, it came up a number of times how, you know, the impact of a career in the police on um, those investigators and experts that work within the police service and how you know one of the things that stands out for me is how if you choose as a, as a cop to become invested emotionally in something mm-hmm. but then you kind of expose yourself to the to the to the hurt that comes with that and to the feelings and to the impact mm-hmm. of that on you psychologically so like are you able to now kind of retrospectively and as a psychologist kind of look in the mirror and really kind of evaluate some of the aspects of your psychology that were maybe affected, continue to be affected, mm. um, and maybe are, you know, things where you have a little bit more peace in your mind. Yeah, I think, like you say, if you get emotionally invested, and it's impossible to be absolutely not not invested in, at all in any of the cases, mm. um, it will suck you dry because the cases are bigger than you because it involves the police system, it involves the justice system, it involves 
so many things that can suck the life out of you if you throw your emotional investment into it. Now, that doesn't mean because you're not throwing emotional investment, you're not throwing your professional investment in it. Mm. Um, and of course, there just will always be some cases that really, really, it, it is difficult to keep that emotional distance and not get angry, at least at some point at something or emotionally burnt out by it. Um, and that can just be a, a, a case that you don't necessarily even suspect is going to have that impact on you. Mm. So I think, you know, it's with the amount of cases, there's always, even if it's one or 2% that you do get emotionally attached to, that's still quite a lot in terms of the number of cases that one's dealing with, um, you know, in, in, in specifically from uh, in the investigative psychology unit where it's so busy. So the more you can keep that emotional investment away, in a sense, the better you'll be able to manage with it and probably the longer you'll be able to do the job for. Yeah. It's when you don't and you kind of really kind of live the life and psyche of the, of the suspect that you just, I think, will get burnt out incredibly quickly. You know, we touched on the fact we've been making TV shows. We've been making a lot of TV shows. We've got six series that we're making this year um, across a range of different topics from kind of occult crimes to small town crimes, a bit of everything. It's going to be great. It's really exciting. It's really interesting. Uh, maybe exciting is not the right word. It can be like any job can be a bit mundane sometimes, but um, uh, it's been really interesting to have the opportunity in working on the TV shows to really get exposed to, uh, you know, a lot of the case materials and to get out to some of these sites as well. I mean, me and my colleagues and yourself, I mean, you're used to it, but part of our day job these days is driving around to film crime scenes and mm-hmm. to kind of experience the the real kind of energy of these places and to understand, you know, when you're standing by one of the quarry killer Richard Nyoza's murder sites, you know, you really get a sense in the space of the isolation and mm-hmm. how he was, you know, how he was able to kind of do what he did by luring women into kind of his realm, you know. So it's really interesting to to get a sense and a, a, mm. a feel for those spaces. We should start like, we should, we should like start a, a, a crime tour around the city, mm. start in Joburg and then do one for every city where you can kind of hop in yeah. a, hop in a, in a bus. And like in Hollywood, around. you get the tour of the exactly. stars homes, we'll have the tour of the serials, crime scenes. Exactly, exactly. Because there really is so much content to make. So that's what we've been doing. So apologies for not making new episodes. I know it's a little bit um, selfish of us because um, we haven't been sharing Gerard's um, great insights and mine and his colleagues. Hopefully we can get, you know, because we've got more people kind of coming through the door for the TV shows, hopefully we can um, get more guests on as well. Mm. Um, we can kind of rope people in to do an episode while they're here and talk about stuff that they're doing. Like I said, I mean, we get the opportunity now to meet with a lot of the police that have worked on these cases um, and with, uh, you know, a lot of the other the pathologists and the mm. psychologists and the other experts, um, you know, kind of with specialized interests. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, that's that. That's what we've been doing. We So we're back to recording <coughs> more episodes. Today we're going to talk a bit about the book. Before we do that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you're feeling just generally reflecting on the state of law enforcement in the country these days and the state of the police Mm -hmm. and kind of the general kind of feel of crime in South Africa. How are you feeling about it these days? I don't think it's gotten better. Um, You know, we on the policing side, you know, obviously there's these big battles going on between the Minister of Police, Behikele, and then, of course, the National Commissioner of Police. So the Minister obviously is a civilian oversight and the National Commissioner is an appointed member of the police who manages the police. Um, But, I mean, that's just kind of part of a long history of 
national commissioners that just haven't fared well since literally the past 15 years, you could almost say, if not longer, from being dismissed, fired, you know, corruption charges, etc. So, you know, the, the, that senior level turmoil is continuing and not getting any better, unfortunately. Um, in terms of crimes, I mean, we've just, I mean, we saw, was it towards the end of last year in Soweto, where that guy was found with a woman's body chopped up in his fridge. He sort of was sent now for mental observation at Stuckman Hospital. So the bizarre crimes are still going on. We've got a couple of cases in court now, these really you know, bizarre intimate partner murders that have taken place. The Ndlovu case. Yeah, so I mean, there's, I, there's still no shortage. My colleagues are still working on serials. They're actually last week, they were in court in Swellendam for a serial murder trial. So those things are still continuing. Um, they march on. Um, and there's just yeah, new, really interesting and amazing ones that are taking place. And I hope, you know, hopefully there are arrests and people going to court. So I don't think anything's better. You know, I just think in general, anything from like you've seen, like the Norwood police station, Johannesburg, where we had the Norwood serial murderer series taking place, you know, where it's found out that guns from their, you know, the evidence locker, the SAP 13, were being used to kill cops from Norwood police station and being sold on to people and... So really that, unfortunately, I, I just don't see our law enforcement has taken any measurable steps in the past five, six, seven years to, to get better. And as far as kind of the continued, what I would term the brain drain out of the cops, mm. has that slowed or continued? Or I mean, I know one of your former colleagues, Hayden, one of the psychologists, has recently emigrated out of the country. That's And just such an incredible mind to have lost... Yeah. Locally, so um, so you, what you're seeing, and, and this is also when I, I still have a fair amount to do with prosecutors, you know, whether it be some training that I'm giving to them or consulting on cases, and they just lament about the quality of the dockets that get presented to them, and that's only dockets when someone's been arrested. So in other words, you can pretty much say a successful investigation, and when they get it and prepare it for trial, they say just these things are just terrible. So what you're finding is that the the the, the good old guard that have been there for many many years and are getting less and less because they're reaching retirement age. So a lot of them are just burnt out and don't want to take an early retirement as soon as they're eligible. Um, and we're just not replacing that old guard with this new generation of really smart, motivated people. And it's not that there aren't smart, motivated people out there, but the problem is if they're coming into a system where they're not getting good training, that's the first problem, they are not then getting good mentoring. Because that's like anything. If you go study whatever you want to study, like law or psychology, the minute you finish, you're not exactly really an experienced qualified. Well, you know, you're not no, you're not ex- you're not good at what you do yet because no. you've never done it. <laughs> I've got stories about people I've worked with at the SABC, for example, or a great example of that. Mm. It always seems to be these kind of state institutions, anyway. Yeah, okay. So, so you know, when, and so you might have a really motivated person, but they haven't got good training, and more importantly, they're not going to get mentored and supervised on the job by really good, experienced people. They're not going to learn. That's really where you learn is when you're back on the job after you've done your basic training. Your training, detective training, is just like a, a step you have to go through with some knowledge. Yeah. You're not skilled. And I just really don't see that we're replacing the ones that we're losing, which means you're going to have really this sort of increasing downward spiral that's going to get worse and worse. And to fix that afterwards, how do you? Because if you don't have good, experienced cops mentoring you know, new and motivated cops. It's like climate change, isn't it? Mm. It's kind of incremental diminishment of the service. And then it picks up at a point where it just... Suddenly you wake up one morning and you realize that crime is just 
gone nuts. Mm. <laughs> and you, there's very little faith left to be have in the institutions mm. that are there to protect you. And, and like with the forensic laboratories, weird out they because they, 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 of mismanagement. It's not that they don't have the people and the equipment, but because of mismanagement, they weren't ordering the chemicals for DNA processing in time. So now DNA processing just stands still. And the minute it stands still, that's a backlog on top of a backlog of yeah. cases because then you're not processing any cases. Yeah. And you've got Again, the ones that were there before you had this. Driver's issue. licenses and DNA, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's across the board, isn't it? It's, it's quite terrible. You know, I mean, from firearm licensing, it's the same thing. People waiting a year and a half where in the time, time frame used to be three months and you'd get a, an answer on your license application. Year and a half, and in some many cases, unless you go to court, nothing happens. So just in so many different areas, there's just a, 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 a downward sort of progression in yeah. terms of... I used to be one of those optimistic types who would hear, you know, your, you know, your typical kind of South African... Someone who's on the kind of the precipice of emigrating, you know, mm. someone who's really kind of downtrodden by the country and the system, and they talk about, oh, crime is terrible in South Africa. And my... My former reaction would be to be a bit more optimistic about that and say, oh, you know, it's, there's crime everywhere and, you know, South Africa is just another country that goes through those kinds of issues. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, I must be honest, the more of this type of content I've been involved with over the last few years, and it really has escalated in the last 12 months making TV shows, um, the less optimistic I am. And I'm like, you know those people that you kind of annoy you at the airport where they're like, ah, don't, you know, leave, the, yeah, you're right, leave, it's a terrible country. Um, I'm kind of like, well, maybe they, they might be underplaying it a little bit. Mm. And it might, maybe you should all stay at home because it's quite scary out there. You know, when you see how many, you know, we've got to meet some of these really great cops that you can see are so invested and committed to, to what they've done or they were so invested and committed in their work and doing it for all the right reasons, you know, not for financial reward, not because they get the opportunity to flash a badge and, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, display their kind of power over someone, but because they maybe come from a family of cops. And so it's just bred into them, the sense of justice and right and wrong and what have you. And it just feels like there's a lot of those guys that, we can speak to quite easily because they're no longer at the police service. Mm. You know what I mean? We do have a good relationship with the police and we have been um, speaking with people who are still kind of active within the police service. Um, we do have to kind of um, um, navigate uh, a, a wish to sanitize stuff, you know what I mean? To sanitize content. Um, there's there's a document that you sign before you do an interview where you, you promise you're not going to show the police in a bad light, for example. And it's like, well, you know, we're, we're the media, we're journalists in a democracy and we're supposed to be able to be impartial and kind of look mm. objectively at something and to have an opinion of it. And unfortunately, not all opinions are going to be the kinds of mm. opinions that you want to hear if you're the PR department at SAMS. And, and even in, in a case where it was solved and a successful conviction, which is success, as, as, as you see in the book, there were a lot of bugger-ups by the police in that process to get into that point. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's unrealistic. Nobody expects the police to be perfect. But, you know, I think covering up any mistakes doesn't help. I, really I don't think the one thing, you know, having worked on 
in television production for a long time with the SABC, for example, back in the day, we used to also be kind of guided on things that we were and weren't allowed to talk about. I actually hosted a late night talk show on SABC back in the day. And I was expressly told by my commissioning editor that I could, I could do kind of comedy. I I hesitate to call it comedy. (laughs) I thought it was funny, some of it, but um, whether other people thought it was funny or not, I don't know. The show wasn't on that for, for that long, but, um, um, you know, I was told I, I could have Tony Leon on or Patricia DeLille or, you know, any of the opposition I could have on and have a bit of fun with them and what have you. But I wasn't allowed to go near the ANC politicians and what have you. I just think that in South Africa, we're, because of just a fear of kind of negative press, of negative, mm. I, I think in South Africa, we're a little bit unsophisticated on a media level that, you know, in the rest of the world, because everyone's had to come to terms with the fact that what you do putting your because of social media in particular when you put yourself when you're in the public realm you put yourself out there for criticism and you're under a bit more of a microscope whether you're a human individual or a brand or whatever or a, or a corporation or a or a you know a political party or whatever um is if in this media environment if you take ownership of the good and the bad you know what I mean? If you understand that everyone's infallible, um, or everyone's fallible rather, and everyone is imperfect, and you're always going to do things that are a little bit wrong, but you're going to be honest and upfront about it, and you're going to own your mistakes and learn from them in the public space. You know, I just don't think we necessarily understand the power of that in South mm-hmm. Africa, whether it's at the national broadcaster making TV shows or whether it's you know, creating content that deals very specifically with the effectiveness or non-effectiveness of the police and security services in South Africa. So it's a bit frustrating and it is a challenge um, Mm. that we definitely try to have to navigate. Fortunately, what we're lucky with is that we're not producing content with the TV TV stuff for local broadcasters. So we find ourselves kind of outside of the typical kind of... um, um, restrictions. What you'll find is you've got maybe ignorant commissioning editors or ignorant people that want to impose their thoughts. They want to let you go and make the show as you feel it or make the content as you want to make it. They want to impose their subjective personal views onto things and um, not kind of embrace the journey of making an objective piece of content that we're going to put out there whether I agree or disagree with aspects of it, we're going to put it out there and let the public decide mm. in our kind of free, democratic kind of environment. Anyway, um, I've been talking for too long, rattling off about my stuff. Um, back to the cops. I wanted to know, um, what does the structure look like of your unit these days? Um, so they, they still do have the sort of national head office component in Pretoria, which is where we were traditionally only a national head office unit. And then even before I left, we decentralized to having little units in the various provinces, which sometimes could be staffed by one person, maybe two. Um, I think it's grown a little bit. Some have dropped in capacity. I think one of the psychologists who was appointed in the Popo has, I think, submitted a resignation. Um, So I think it's at the moment in the provinces, it's anything from three to five maybe people, of which I think Cape Town, Limpopo, uh, have psychologists also in those little subunits. And then at the national office, there is, you know, I think one psychologist. So still in in many senses bigger than when I left. Um, Staff have come and gone, which is always sad because, you know, this is a 
you build up people's experience and skills and then they leave and it's very difficult to reskill those new people. So I think it's difficult if people see it as a transitional unit that, well, this is a post I applied for, I'm going to be a captain. And in two years time, I want to apply for a lieutenant colonel's post. And probably it's not going to be in the unit because there won't be a post available for them. Mm. So it's kind of sad that you almost see this. It becomes a transitional unit where people move through almost like, I want to say I work there because that's good on my CV. <clears throat> and when I apply for a different job. So you find oh, some of the people who are in our unit are now a branch commander at a, detect- at, a, at a detective branch commander at a police station, which is quite a nice senior post. Oh, I see. So and that's, you know, we, it's always sad because you can't just keep on grooming new people all the time. Mm-hmm. And by the time they become skilled, they kind of move on. It's just, you need someone who's in it to kind of destroy, slowly destroy their emotional mm-hmm. capacity and, to live in the world over 30, 40 <laughs> years of a career of murder and rape. And if you look at the original members of the unit, I mean, I think Mickey was there for six years. Omri has been there since 96, and she's still there. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Omri Mayberg. Lieutenant Colonel Yander Lang has been there since 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for, for 14 and a half years. So the original crowd were, were there because that's what they wanted. They didn't want to be anywhere else in the police in terms of the type of work they did, the cases they worked on. And it was a place where you went and stayed for a very long time. And since, you know, the units expanded, you find it's a lot of people who use it perhaps as a stepping stone. And, and not that I hold it against them, because I think, you know, police salaries are terrible. And if you're earning a captain or a warrant officer salary, it's still peanuts compared to the, the outside world. And, you, you know, you've got life. You've got children that you want to get educated and you want to move up financially. So you are going to, unfortunately, have to apply for a different rank, higher rank, which means invariably, unless there's one in the unit, you're going to be applying outside because, of, of course, the police is massive. So there's always posts being advertised on a, on a level higher than you. Um, so, you know, one can't blame people for that, but it's it's not great that the that SAP still has this old-fashioned model that your salary is linked to your rank. Yeah. You can't stay in a job that you're good at and that you've got massive amounts of skill and that you love and allow your salary to go up and up and up and up and up. Yeah. And that's one of the, or I've always said that's one of the biggest flaws in the police. If you love driving a van, being that patrol cop out there, and that's what you love doing and you're good at because you're just good at that kind of, that suits your personality. But that's, you know, the van drivers, I think maybe sergeant warrants, maybe warrant officers. And then typically you don't get people above that rank going out and patrolling and driving vans. So you then have to go up into sort of higher levels when you're doing something different. Um, It's also just the natural logic of it. I mean, it's like playing soccer. You can't, you know, you start off at junior level and you get little plastic trophies. That's your payment for doing well. You can't expect that little plastic trophies are going to suffice when you're playing for Manchester United, Mm -hmm. can you? Um, The salary goes up. As you become more of an expert, as you become more... um, invested and you know and you've invested more of a career in some way mm-hmm. they should they should reward that it's it just doesn't make sense not to yeah. you're right and also again the similarities to how it works in the within the media here within the, the sabc for example mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's this is i guess part of the challenge isn't it in so many things in south africa is that it's not about having the kind of people to go out and do the work it's having the right vision guiding mm. guiding the way you know um there i imagine that there's not somebody who's really thinking at a senior level about okay i've got this efficient unit in a in a changing world and i need to how do i need to adapt this unit so that it retains talent so that it continues to grow and expand is there still the um annual 
um, forensics course that, that you would kind of drive whilst you were there? Yeah, so the Psychologically Motivated Crimes course, obviously in COVID, it, it, didn't, it didn't happen. But they have, I think, scheduled, I'm not sure if they had last year, they might have had one. Um, and I think they have one or two maybe scheduled for this year. So that, that training will now pick up again now that COVID restrictions are sort of lifted to a large degree. Before we take a little break to go make some coffee and um, we talk very specifically more about your book and the response to your book and, and about some interesting stuff related to your book. Um, uh, uh, what about you and your relationship with the police these days? Is there is there any chance that the brain that's right here that has been drained from SAPS, that it might be kind of plugged back in at some point in some way to help to alleviate some of these issues, passing on some of your knowledge to young, any, any relationship there that... Not, not at the moment, and there's none that's sort of in the pipeline. I know uh, sometime during last year, I kind of... I was speaking to the current head of the unit, Brigadier Tusi, and I said, well, you know, you, I, there's kind of, I would suggest a certain program for the people that are joining the unit that you put them through, specifically the psychologists. Um, and I kind of asked if I was sort of send them an outline of what I thought could be done. And, and a lot of that can be done without much expense because you just, you know, send people off to spend some time at different units to get exposure to various fields. Sure. And you've um, got all the PowerPoint presentations. And I've, yeah, I've and, seen them. And then on top of that, of course, then the training that I could offer to them in terms of developing their skills. Mm. And nothing's happened with that um, yet. And I said, even that, a lot of it was what can be done within the police. So it wouldn't even involve external people or costs. And nothing's happened there. So I don't think realistically, I think that they're ever going to approach me to assist them. And there's okay. been no movement towards that. Um, but you're always available. Yeah. Hey, always available. And then last thing, work for you, um, you know, threat management. How's the threat management vibe out there? Mm. Look, it's still continuing. I mean, the corporate work, I think, again, the effects of the COVID and the pandemic has slowed down over the past three years since COVID happened. I mean, one can literally see if you look at our, we're calculating our tax for the past three years. And you can see that the definitely less income coming in from the corporate side. Hopefully that's going to maybe pick up this year. But uh, otherwise, work-wise, like I said, it's still, I've been testifying in some court cases, um, consulting with some prosecutors on, on cases. Um, obviously, the book, as I said, doing some media work here and there. So lots of different fingers and different pies, which is like I said earlier, that's what you've got to do. I think in this modern age of work, you often do have different fingers and different pies. And that's also because it's very often satisfying to do different things. Absolutely. Okay, well, we'll talk more about this kind of stuff as we kind of go, making new um, shows for folks to listen to. Um, the one thing I wanted to say in relation to the TV shows and stuff and the other work that we're doing is that and a part of what we want to do as well, one of the interesting things about the podcast, and again, one of the reasons I kick myself every time we haven't been recording episodes, and I know it's been a long time, but uh, is the fact that we do get some really interesting feedback. So we've had some some great feedback from folks who have, you know, had a, you know, a connection to particular cases, etc. Some stuff that we've got to follow up on, which mm. which which we can maybe talk about in future episodes, some like crazy stuff <laughs> but um yeah i think you know it makes there's a i think for us in our little crime media universe it makes a lot more sense now to be you know we need to do the podcast so that we can also be engaging more with with kind of listeners and people and starting to connect more to people who are linked to and who have had experience of crime, etc. Mm. so um what i wanted to say to those folks to you folks listening is 
you know, if if you've been associated to a particularly interesting crime, or if you have a particularly interesting crime story that that you're aware of, that maybe we're not aware of, or um, you know, if you're the relative of a serial killer that we've discussed, reach out to us, say hello. Um, it would be nice to hear from you. We are trying our our mission in life is to kind of create this network of, of folks who are um, we're able to make um, TV content with, mm-hmm. which is. Um, it's it's quite challenging. The one thing I we find to be cha- challenging is connecting to the people related to the mm. crimes, who you know, friends, family members, etc. Because there's just not not a great accessible record of those people, mm. and so a big part of our research effort is and will become, you know, it's, it's ramping up more now as the year gets underway, is to really start to do a lot more investigation into those the people around crimes and to to find those people who are. I um, have insight into these things and are willing to talk about them and to mm. kind of share their stories because what we do is really all about making great stories. Um, please do listen to the podcast. It's available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify and do share it with your friends. Um, we're going to be making plenty of new episodes for you guys to listen to. You know, we'll probably make a batch and then mm. post them and then take a little breather and make a batch and post them. Um, that's kind of well, we'll see how it goes we're going to put, putting less pressure on ourselves to be super rigid but we're going to certainly be putting out great new episodes um, on a regular basis um, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profile Africa and you can join our Facebook group um, we're just going to make some coffee and then we'll be back to talk about yep. um, the Profiler Diaries and, and how it's gone and um, so we'll be back in a second to uh, talk about the book Some of the cases we have covered in the show um, are also covered in Gerard Labaskachny's very first book, The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist, which has been out since March last year, so nearly a year now. Um, I wanted to write this book before I forgot the finer details. As strange as that may sound, you can forget these things, and it is probably healthier to do so. You can visit the depths of hell, just don't hang around there for too long. Sounds like good advice. Gerard, what, I mean, we've, for those who are uninitiated on all things book, tell us a little bit about what was the motivation behind this in the first place. Um, some, some of which I have alluded to in the lovely quote on the back cover there. Um, I think, you know, even when I started in this position in 2001, everybody said, are you going to write a book or books like Mickey Pistorius, who was my predecessor? I think by that point, she had at least one book out of kind of like similar to mine, some cases that she worked on. Mm. <clears throat> and of course, I was just new in the job and of course, didn't have cases to talk about anyway. And I didn't think the police would want me to be writing such a book if I was still in the police, at least not in the way I wanted to tell the story, which was... What directives do they give you in that regard whilst you're at the police? Um, I'm not actually sure officially what is there. You would probably need to get somebody's permission, if anything, just your from your se- a senior officer. I'm, I'm not sure because I, I never even bothered to try. But I knew that they wouldn't be happy if I was criticizing or having critical aspects about the police and I'm still in the police. That's I think if you work in any company, being critical about the company you're working on and blasting it in social media or in books, absolutely. either informally is going to infect your career or formally they're going to come down on you sure. for that. So that was the main reason. And as I said, when I 
they actually started getting it into the job. It was we were just so busy there was no time to write books. You were trying to finish reports and consult on cases. So and then when I left, it really was I just wanted to get away from these cases. I didn't really have the psychological energy to think about, write about, you know, etc. these cases, although there were lots of people that approached me and said, Don't you want to write your book now that you're out? Um and then it was really just time and distance that made me feel considering it because there is a real possibility to actually start writing it. Initially, I was, I was starting up my new business. That, of course, had, took up a lot of my time in that sense. And like I said, when COVID hit, all of a sudden you had forced time, whether you liked it or not. So I think it was a, a mixture of me being psychologically in the right space to write and, of course, in having this opportunity, which is lockdown and COVID, etc., that really, you know, there was lots of time to do it. So that was kind of, I suppose, the perfect storm, which, uh, and in a couple of months, I'd written it. Tell us a little bit about your writing process. Oh, do I have one? <laughs> um, well, you can reflect now, because one thing we will reveal is that you very much finished the first kind of transcript of your f- second book. Yeah. Which yeah. is a little surprise there for everyone. Um, so tell us a bit about your process, if you have one. Um, I think if, if you don't now, it's the time to let's clarify it. Let's think. Let's unpack it. I don't have a strict prose in the sense of you know every morning between eight and ten I'm going to sit and write. I think if you're a professional writer, you should do that. For me, it kind of felt like firstly deciding which cases I want to include, which could be a interesting case as the first criteria. B that I had some involvement, otherwise I don't want to be writing about other people's cases. You know that's impersonal. Um, and do I have enough information? Because often when we worked on cases, we might have been doing a very specific portion. I might have only been required to testify at court. So I didn't necessarily have every single fact and detail down enough to tell a story. And even with a podcast, you know, podcasts is more of a conversation. You don't have to go on this date, I did this. People would get very bored in a court, in a podcast format if you've been so pedantic about every single little date and what happened next. So... With the book, you have to have a lot more available information. So a mixture of interesting case that I was involved in that I actually have a, a pretty solid old case file back at the unit or records myself to be able to give the level of detail to put together a chapter that is what is required in that from the editor. Mm-hmm. And then it was really I would often sit back and go, which one do I feel like working on? Which one really right now suits my space of mind where I am? And I'd say, well, this one I want to start. So it might not be the first chapter or the chronologically the first case in the 10 or 5 or 6 that I'm going to talk about but it's the one at that point in time I felt like I really want to do and then I'd really just sit down and start writing you know sometimes it would just be getting those first words out that I know I'm going to have in the first introductory paragraph about the case you know this case was interesting for this reason or back in 2010 it was a time of the world cup and when I got a phone call from someone and at times you almost write it disjointed because I would find it I have a lot of information about the judgment because I've got the copy of it. So I'll almost sometimes then summarize that and have it waiting and then sort of work on other bits. So it's a mixture of what do I have available at the time that I can proceed on. And the last thing you want to do is not, not write because you're stuck on an aspect that you need to clarify from a detective. And then for two weeks, you don't clarify it and you've done nothing. So I always felt that I've got to be moving forward on the book, even if I'm writing bits and pieces disjointed and you can do that when you're talking about the sentencing because that's a very compartmentalized phase the judgment is a very compartmentalized phase um you know or i'll sit there with this the the, the autopsy report and, and kind of summarize that even though it's not yet in the order of where oh, things I are see. going to be okay. and I, so yeah. it's kind of like editing a tv show already you select the, the the chunks you want yeah. 
before then going into refine and see how it really fits into a nice kind of flowy yeah. narrative with kind of peaks and troughs. Whereas with your, if you're writing a novel, you can't do that. You can't really write the end, really, and the middle. Whereas this, because it's, it's a factual thing that's, that progresses from point crime scene to courtroom, you can do that and break it up and then just make sure in the end that they all kind of flow together. You shouldn't write the end because it limits the potential <laughs> for future Netflix series. Exactly. Like spin-offs. Yeah. I've noticed with kind of our interactions with um, your former colleagues, etc., that a lot of them seem to be quite fond of you and hold you in quite high regard. So, um, you know, I imagine that it's also quite easy for you in the research process to reach out to some of your colleagues mm. and people who are involved in the case, Not you know, even if you haven't necessarily spoken with them recently. Um, a lot of willingness to kind of participate and help fill in the gaps and that kind yeah. of thing. So even now, as I'm writing book two, you know, the, I need to find out some arbitrary information of a small role player, but the, the editor wants to know the person's first name. Mm-hmm. And we often just know it, the people as Inspector Makubela or Sergeant Smith. Okay. And, you know, you reach out to a guy you haven't spoken to. And that's the nice thing about the police. You know, you can reach out to people you haven't spoken to for a couple of years and you just kind of carry on. You know, you don't have to apologize for not having contacted them and okay. they're upset with you. That's just how the you know, policing is. You're always busy with stuff. So when you see someone you know, it's great and enjoy that moment and you carry on. So that's been very helpful. That, and, I, and I think, I mean, I, I always just really enjoyed working with cops. And I think I'm a pretty, you know, amenable guy to hang around with. And we had a lot of fun. So, you know, a lot of fond memories and friendships that were built up that, yes, I mean, if I need to phone Yanni DeLunga from my old unit and ask him something, he's always happy to help me. And, you know, and that's just, I think, the nice nature of police relationships. And how did you go about sourcing a publisher for those people out there who are writing their mm-hmm. own books or interested in just a little bit kind of insight from you into that, your experience of that yeah. part of the world of putting out a book? Well, I, I knew that... Um, Mickey Pistorius obviously published, I think, three or four books by now. Um, and she'd done them all through Penguin. So I thought at least they know what this is about and they might therefore have a bit more interest because they've done, you know, phase one, which was Mickey, and, yeah. you know, that they could leverage off that. So so that was obviously a logical publisher to approach. And, of course, Penguin is a very big publisher. You know, it's well-established, etc. I did also go to, I was it... Uh, Jacon, I, I learned how to read on Penguin books. That's for oh, sure. really? In the UK, yeah. Penguin so, was, was the thing. Somebody also had recommended Jacana, which is another local um, publisher that had done a lot of nice, really, really amazing books. A smaller publisher, of course. And so I approached both and I sent them one chapter that I'd written, the, the Womb Raiders chapter about the Caesarean kidnapping. I said, look, I want to do a book and this is kind of the type of stuff. Yeah. And they both actually came back saying, yeah, we'll, we'll offer you a... Um, a contract to publish. Penguins was a better offer financially. Um, I think Jacana was a very, very personal touch, which I liked. But in the end, as an author, you've got to look at how how far and why can your books be distributed. Yeah. And that's what the publishers do, is that their expertise, not only in helping you edit the book, etc., but in getting it to the right people. And I felt oh, the deal is better financially um, and Penguin are a bit bigger, so and they have the potential for overseas reach so I went uh, with Penguin. I'm sure I would have been just happy with Jakarta, but although, you know, as I said, a bit of smaller distribution potentially. So tell us a little bit about that reach. We touched on the, on the number of times that it's been mm. into reprint. Um, tell us a bit about how well it's done. What are the, num- what are the numbers look yeah, like? So, so the last I checked, I think we're on about between ten and 11,000 printed copies that are, industry, that are out there. And like I said, they don't print a massive amount 
and then sit with stock. They print like a thousand, maybe one and a half thousand at a time, and then they send it off and keep some in stock, and they send it off to exclusive books and bargain books and whoever else. So you know that when you when you're reaching the eleven thousand book, it's the numbers are pretty much close behind in terms of sales. I think on the ebook version, six hundred and ninety. Um, I'm not too sure about the Audible because they eventually did an audio book on which you can get on Audible and, and I think did Amazon. No, I wanted to, oh, and I and I thought that would be really cool to have the actual author reading his own book. Was it Alex J then? No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually another guy. I think his name is also Gerard. Oh, okay. um, and they send me three people's and they give you voice samples and you kind of suggest I like this one. Um, so it's sexy Gerard reading. Yeah, I hope so. Because <laughs> I thought it'd be really interesting to have the book read by the author. You know, how more uh, yeah, can you? Yeah, I think that's. And I still for? think for the second one, I might sort of say, "Look, guys, I really would like to." read it myself yeah, and I think yeah. they're afraid that you're going to ad lib and change and, and I mean you understand yeah. that you read what's in front of you yeah. but I think it's just really cool to hear the author speak and I think that will be for me a draw card if I could listen to a Stephen King book and Stephen King's reading it well I mean you know <laughs> when you write language you know when you lay out language you kind of it is in your natural voice speaking yeah. voice to a large degree and it? it's not I mean so I can understand nice maybe to, to if it's a storybook because then often they do do a little bit of you know change of the voice for this yeah. character etc but this is a it's it's my story of my, the cases. No, it's don't, a, don't it's a profile and diary, you know. Character voices for zero. No, so uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'm quite keen to still say to them, look, you know, next one, I really want to be the person to read it because it, it's the profile and diary. It's my story of these cases. Yeah, when um, I speak in the or write in the first person, so. We'll see with that. So, so I don't know when how, are you going to? When is it going to be on the New York Times bestseller list? Like, know. how does it? What is the the process then to go from local distribution to then um, mm. the big so, white world? So Penguin, although Penguin is part of the the bigger Penguin International stable, it's sort of the Penguin South Africa branch. So you you negotiate with that branch. Sure. So if, for example, Penguin in the U.S. wanted to distribute it, you'd have to, you'd have to negotiate a separate contract with them. I know at one point the, the person I'm dealing with at Penguin said, look, there has been someone who wants to try and market it in the U.S. Are you okay with that? And I said, sure. You know, and it was kind of the same, roughly the same deals, et cetera. And I said, go ahead. And I mean, if, if it takes off, that's fantastic. So it's difficult to try and push it. Um, you know, obviously, I have a lot of colleagues overseas that I've told about the book. And I think that's pretty much, I think, a lot of the... The e-books were picked up by overseas people because on Amazon you can get the e-book, but you can't order the hard copy. Okay. So if you wanted a hard copy, you'd literally have to know someone in South Africa yeah. who could send it to you. So even loot and take a lot and even I think exclusive books you can order it on their website, don't send overseas. And I always thought that's a bit of frustration. So I do think that 690 e-books is the overseas crowd. I know a colleague, a friend of mine overseas is listening to the audiobook right now. Heaven forbid we send our products out of the country. We are not we are not a sending ground for, yeah. for, for anything. We are a receiving ground. We need their stuff. So maybe if they see that there's a lot of people, the e-books are all being bought up by overseas people, they might be more inclined to say, let's push and promote it and, and get it out there in, in hard copy to the overseas crowd. So, But I suppose you need someone like an Oprah to find out about it and then say, hey, That's there's what we this need. book. <laughs> we need the podcast to be huge. Yeah. yeah. And I see Joe Rogan is kind of faltering. Oh. So there's, yeah. a, there's, <laughs> there's a, gap a gap in the market. Gap in the market. Just need to take it. You know mm. what I mean? Like I mean, good, there's, you like know, there's scrum off. Or, or whether it gets picked up. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Somebody wants to make an overseas documentary series based directly on the book. You know, that might be a way to get it, you know, sold overseas. But I'm just happy, as I said, how, how well it's doing locally. Maybe our TV shows, which are being made for international distribution, are going to just take off and you're going to mm. be. I mean, I see these guys who are on, you know, there's one or two guys who are on the British crime shows that are like on every crime show. 
You know what I mean? And I'm sure that they 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 see the benefits when they're publishing their books. And no, I'm I, sure I, that their books are available at exclusive. I still books. do think there is yeah, what do you call it a, a latent racism towards Africa where people don't really think that we've got something that's it's really like cool to talk about. Absolutely. Um, and I think you know, to you just need a couple of people in the right businesses overseas to read it and go, wow, actually, this has got some amazing stories. I was stories. very involved in the kind of music scene in South Africa in like the late 90s, early 2000s, making entertainment, music and entertainment content. Mm. And I went overseas the one time on a tour with a group called Bongo Muffin, a local mm. music act. And they played in New York and various cities around America. And the response was always in- incredible because it was like an, um, an initial kind of like, what is this? Then a, 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 sl- a quick acceptance, and then just kind of people would lose their minds because mm. it's just also this awesome new Kwaito sound. Um, and yeah, that seems to have been kind of swallowed up by um, Western culture mm. these days, where kind of you see like hip hop music and kind of dominating in South Africa. And some of the more kind of locally born themes and genres were just kind of drowned out by this noise. And it's always frustrated me because it's like, well, that authentic South African, that authentic Sound. is so valuable because it's not just stories that are new. Mm. It's a cultural context and a cultural and social perspective that's that's kind of unknown. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what disappoints me about our ability as kind of African content creators to, to break out into the world is it always seems to have to be you have to get out of the country to be able to reflect back on yeah. it. And then kind of after six months of being out of the country, like a Trevor or whatever, you kind of forget, you know, your priorities are elsewhere. So although Trevor will do a lot more African type content than he, than another host might, mm. his, his focus is still. He's becoming more like the other talk show. Elsewhere, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. it's not that kind of like we, it's like we've got to travel with the content for it to be worthwhile. We can't just be here making it at home in Joburg mm. and it become really, really popular mm. in the global market or people really back it in the global market because it's, I don't think it's the, 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 it's not the strength of the substance or the, you know, that's the problem. It's the lack of marketing mm. oomph that goes behind mm. it and that willingness to say, I'm going to invest a lot of money in this because I'm, I feel like it's good enough to get mm. those rewards. And if I don't, I'm not going to see the, if I don't market it enough, mm. then I'm not going to see the potential. We just, I mean, you know, we really struggle in you, so many areas. Even if I look at, say, Mickey Pistorius's book, Catch Me Killer, which is kind of like my, my book and her book are very same in terms of what those books are trying to set out and achieve. I mean, which is, and her book, Catch Me Killer, was very, was very, very popular in South Africa. I mean, it never took off overseas, but I know that, for example, she did mention to me the other day that there's a British... TV company that's making a, uh, it's not a doc, it's sort of like when they take the book and they make it into the, the story version of the book, you know, with actors, etc. So, you know, how many years, but that's finally at least getting, I suppose, you know, some, at least on a TV kind of series version, getting some attention. Um, so we'll see. I mean, the local feedback has been pretty good. There's been some very interesting negative feedback from one or two people. Let's hear some of it then. Let's hear it. Do you want the negative? Or let's the, go. Let's go. Okay, Have you got so some of this? I nice do. I was, quotes from both. And it's amazing. It's, it's like when it's you're the looking, internet. They've put themselves out there. Let's find out who these people are as well. So it's, it's like when you're looking for accommodation on bookings.com or whatever these sites are, and there'll be like a hundred really great reviews of this hotel, and there'll be like one that's really bad, and you go, ooh, and you'll think, maybe I shouldn't go stay. Someone you arrested <laughs> in jail with an internet yeah. connection. So I'm looking that. here now. It's on, on Audible. Um, 
Audible UK reviews. Okay. The heading is not worth your time. <laughs> Total lack of coherent story, uh-huh. insights and critical thinking, a boring litany of direct reading from reports, an inflation of self-importance, impossible to finish. And I really think I like, like I don't at all quote from reports. Um, political thinking, I'm very critical about a lot of stuff in this story. So it's interesting. I kind of sit there and I wonder, this is so such a out-of-touch review that you kind of wonder, this, is this someone that I arrested or did I arrest this person's family member? <laughs> so that person gives his name. I'm not going to say his name, obviously. Or are they... Uh, what, what astounds me is how... Let's be It's the internet. It's really, really easy <laughs> to be an armchair expert on the internet. The, then audible.com. I'm the best at many things. So audible.com, I think that's the, that's the audiobooks. Okay. One person says, returned it is the heading. Looking forward to this, but was so disappointed, decided to return it. There's no structure or interesting facts or insights. It's hard to believe the author, who seems so disinterested in crimes, criminals, victims, and everything and everyone other than himself, has played a role in solving crimes at all. So again, I look at this like, I don't think you actually finished the book. But, you um, know what I think? I was watching a documentary the other day where um, they were talking about bots and the kind of impact of bots on, um, on the media and how... Um, you can't really be popular, for example, as a social media influencer these days, just by putting out good content. You also have to be really out there shopping for likes and mm. for streams and what have you, and paying money for that. Um, you know, this could be this could this reeks of kind of Russian bot to me. This could be some automatic response just to make sure that there's a balance of positive and negative about everything. You know, it's, just, it's always the negative that seems to come through. That yeah. it's probably you know it's some. Some 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 content farm in, in yeah. Siberia. And then I saw another one, I can't remember where it was, a person said that they were very offended by the fact that one of the chapters was called Womb Raiders, the chapter about cesarean kidnapping, because it's very disrespectful. Another person somewhere posted that they were very upset about the fact that I had crime scene photographs. I'm like, well, it's if you read a cooking book, you're going to see pictures about food. Yeah. If you read a crime book, probably you're going to see pictures about yeah. Crime scene. And I think we, we are selected ones lest that were very we tasteful. Forget, lest we forget, Jared, that we no longer live in a world where it is acceptable to offend people on any level. Even if it's somebody that's gone out and brought a book specifically about murder with blood splatter and bloody hands on the cover. Um, you know, they'll open up and see a picture and be offended by it. And that's just the end of the world, isn't it? Because, yeah. because heaven forbid that we... Um, we, we offend people's sensitive sensibilities these days. And, and that's kind of the, really the few bad ones. The rest are all very positive, gripping, interesting, eye-opening, couldn't put it down, long time coming, amazing well, to read about this. Well, my mom this, read so. it now over Christmas, and she loved it. Thank you very much. Tell your mom I said She that. doesn't like you that much. Okay. So it's perfectly objective. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, overwhelming. I think the, the, most, the greatest feedback I've had is from the, the, the people that know me, like the cops that I worked with who read it and said, wow, I really like the book because I mean cops aren't inclined to sort of say nice things they'll rather if they I think you're, you're going to say read them no no, 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 no say they're not inclined if they don't like you and then you're an asshole they'll, they'll just ignore you and they won't say anything usually mm-hmm. um, so the fact they say that I, they really like because that's you know you, I think it's it's from people who are in the environment that giving you a compliment means a lot and then people that know me who say you know I read the book and it was like sitting across the table talking to you and I thought that's really that's really a, like a really huge compliment yeah. because it's the pers- the profile of diaries because it's the personal account of these cases through my experience of them. It's not just somebody who researched the cases and put them together just in, in dispassionately. So you, you really hone in on five cases. If you were to, how, how many cases do you did you kind of have to pick from? 
Um, well, I mean, geez, I mean, as I said, I worked on 110 murder series, a few hundred rape series. How did you and narrow then, it down then? I, I, you've touched on this kind of like it was cases that you were, you were kind of interested, but did you, did you map out all of the potential cases you could cover before you really started? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I might have maybe had a, initially a list of 20 cases. And then again, it was a combination of do I have inf- good enough info on them? What did I do in the case? Yeah, um, okay. do I, do, you know, you don't, also don't want to, although the first book was heavily skewed towards serials in some way or another, whether we caught the person on the first murder, but we knew they were going to become a serial or etc. Um, but that per se wasn't intentional. The first book had a very strong serial theme. Um, so yeah, so then obviously with the second book, I had to sit and think what's left and what's great and what's interesting, what have I got uh, available? And there's just so many um, that one could write about. Yeah. Um, so expect a third and fourth book. Sure, I don't know. I think the next one I'm probably going to write, that I'm quite in- interested to write about, is a book about one case. That It's just one particular case. And this was the guy, and I mentioned it in the first book, Profile of Diaries, Part 1, um, the one case that I always wanted to see solved, which was the case of Andrea Fenter, who was murdered by a boyfriend in 2012, if I recall correctly. Then skipped the country. We tracked him to Brazil. Then he just then he was released from arrest there by a corrupt judge. And then we tracked him down again. And he's now actually this year waiting trial. And that's just a phenomenal case because of all those twists and turns. And before the murder, what happened, and after the murder, and then his time in Brazil, and yeah. his father, who was just like him in many ways. And so that's just amazing. And that would be far more than I could squeeze into a chapter. So I'm quite keen to, to write that up. And that's, again, I've got great information about the case. I was very intimately involved in helping that guy get caught. Um, and because it's about to go on trial, it's all fresh in there. So that I think if I do write another one, I might attempt that, which is quite different. I mean, here, you know, by the time I've finished a chapter, I'm kind of tired of it, you know, and I, I'm happy that I've finished that chapter and that case and I'm putting it aside. So it's kind of like little mini achievements as you get each chapter done, because it's like a contained story on its own. Whereas with one book, one story in a book with lots of chapters, it's like, I think it, it's quite different. It's a long slog because you're not, even if you're in chapter three, you're not yet, you're halfway through the story, yeah. you know, and I think that will be quite a different challenge to write. But I think that one I'd be quite keen to write and we'll see whether there's an interest. I mean, I think it's nice if you've got five or six chapters of different cases because there's always going to be something, hopefully, you know, the majority of the cases will be interesting to the person who's reading the book. And if there's one or two that they think is, yeah, that's okay, but not my cup of tea. Yeah, that's okay because we're all different. So having one story, it'll be interesting to see whether, whether that's enough to get readers' attention to it's, buy it. I mean, we go through this thought process kind of developing the, the TV content as well. It's, there's clearly certain cases that there's kind of um, the potential to really just do a whole series mm. of, on one story. You know, maybe it's the, the Oscar case, for example. And, you know, either, I've spoken about, we've spoken about this, but just a, just a, a series on that just covered the day. Yeah. On, on that crime scene and what I understand to be some of the kind of ups and downs and mm-hmm. you know it seems like it's just a drama filled day um, you know could almost be a series Absolutely. in itself um, to go back and reinvestigate some unsolved cases like mm-hmm. you say or um, there really is just so much potential for crime content how did you did, have you been catching any of the true crime series that have been Produced locally, for example, Devil's Door by Noah's. So, yeah, you know, Devil's Door, the sort of Kruger's Door murders. Um, you know, I was involved in that case in the earlier phases before the what they call the appointment murders, where they were taken out. So I think it was estate agents. Um, oh, yeah. I was involved with the murders prior to that in my unit. 
So I kind of knew the cases. Often I often don't feel like watching things about cases that I've worked on. Um, and also I did watch three quarters of the first episode and I, I couldn't watch more. <laughs> I just, you know what it was for me? It's like, it's devil called Devil's Dorp. But I know from having spoken, I've spoken to now to, to one, one former cop who was in the occult unit for like 15 years and she, or for 10, 10 to 15 years. And she was saying that she'd had the opportunity to speak to some of the, mm. the, the, the Krugersdorp bunch and that she'd specifically quizzed them on the occult to get a sense of, okay, how much are these folks into the devil? And it was very clear to her that it had, these people were not, you know, the devil thing was just a little, was it just a, t- a small aspect of, mm. of their kind of ruse, but they really knew nothing about the devil per se. It's not like they were having satanic rituals in the garden. It was more of a, more of a cult mm. than the occult. Mm. So to me, it's the whole, the whole approach to the documentary was off. And, um, when you look at it through the mirror of working with an organization like Multi-Choice or DSTV, um, you know, having worked with them like I've worked with the SABC, and you know that it's kind of like a, a white Christian core that's often decide mm. what content is being made from the, uh, often an Afrikaans kind of community as well that's very well represented there, is that you're going to see then that, you know, the devil kind of resonates with that target audience. So it's like, okay, well, we're going to then angle and make it about the devil because we know that, you know, a lot of our audience go to the Enkirk on the weekend and it's really going to resonate with them. It's kind of, the, the, you know, that classic battle between the God and the devil. Mm-hmm. When really, I think those people, if you look at it from the perspective I've come to look at these things, a lot of it through my interactions with you, which I think has given me a little bit of Gerard vision, if you like, um, you know, these are just some. This is, there's a, this is these are people that are manipulative. Mm. That are you know, there's a lot of psychology at play there. Absolutely. Um, but it's not this kind of. There's not the lack of responsibility that comes with that's implied that comes with this being the act of the devil. Mm. You know what I mean? Kind of imposing his spiritual will on people that otherwise wouldn't have mm. been like that. So to me, the whole core of the story was just kind of off. The whole, the whole core of that mm. angle. And that for me is a little bit disappointing because, and that's also why I think I got through maybe mm. the first episode. Um, but it is nice to see more local content. Local that's, and it was a very popular, I mean, made. a lot of people really, really enjoyed it. So I kind of almost felt like I should finish it just because so many people are talking about it and it often becomes a reference point for people when they talk about anything yeah. crime related. So I probably will finish it one day. I just... Like I said, in general, I don't, don't do better read. DSTV. So when people bring it up, bring up the shows, <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't have to like correct people. I'm even doing that. I'm like, I just, you know, I hear you that you enjoyed it, but I'd rather not have to do yeah. that. Because so, in general, I mean, I've said this before, I don't actually read crime books, whether it's true crime or crime novels. And I don't typically watch, I don't spend my day watching crime investigation channel. Don't? It's not, I think because if you've worked in it, you've had your full of it. And also you just, you realize specifically with dramatized stuff, how wrong the stuff is that it doesn't, it doesn't attract me. So that I have to say could be a reason why I just didn't feel like finishing Devil's Talk. But I suppose because it's such a reference point. It's like at the time when the, what's that book, 50 Shades of Grey came out, it became such a talking piece and became even in psychology sort of world and, 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 uh, you know, it became a reference piece for a lot of the conversations that I felt, oh God, I should read this goes to show how starved we are of crime content that even something that's a little bit kind of foundationally off um, um, is really kind of 
mm. eaten up, gobbled up by the audience. The audience. I mean, that's why that um, Afrik- on the Afrikaans show um, TV channels, uh, it was the Heisenutz Vara Levens drama, true life dramas. Which you often reference. Which I think they won for four years and was massively popular. I mean, obviously it's an Afrikaans show and, and you get a, Afrikaans viewers are very, very dedicated. It was hugely popular. And then for some reason, Heisenutz decided they're not going to continue funding it. But if I walked around Pretoria, this is pre-before us walking around with masks, you know, I would regularly get stopped. I mean, if I, because I stay now in Johannesburg, but if I go back to Pretoria and I'd be walking a shopping mall, almost always someone would say, aren't you, is you any guy, oh, aren't you that guy from that show? And I was having coffee with a friend in December in Centurion. And there were a group of ladies sitting at a table and it was someone's birthday party. And as I was waiting for my friend to arrive. And like the chill lady kept on looking at me. I thought, hey, maybe because it's, I, you know, maybe they think I'm good looking. And no. <laughs> so they came over and said, aren't you that profiler guy, Labaskakni, from that show? And can I take a picture? So that was quite fun. But it just shows you that there's definitely a lot of interest in true crime stuff. And I think the Afrikaans community, they love this true crime stuff, specifically if it's presented in Afrikaans to them. Which is great. And there are channels and there are there are platforms that cater to that audience. But we're in South Africa and the 90% of the country is not the Afrikaans community. And so I just feel like the perspective should come from there. I mean, mm. it is our it is that challenge to find our authentic African voice that is representative mm. of the broader kind of mm. perspective of Africans that is, I think, important and it's a challenge and it's something we've certainly not mm. gotten right it's something i'm certainly committed to invested in um i've lost my faith in the past but i, I have mm. my faith back these days because we're getting the opportunity to make content kind of on our terms and it's our story and we luckily now are not in an environment like we typically are in south africa where there's a lot of editorial kind of input where it's like oh we, you need to move that slightly to the left or mm. that slightly to the right you know what i mean it's like we trust that you guys are committed to this content and that where you've put it is the right spot mm. for it. And we'll let the audience decide. And if the audience likes it and we're able to sell it, then, you know, we'll make more. And that's that's what we want. We kind of have faith in your product. You know, like a Steve Jobs, you know, nobody to when Steve thought iPod, if anyone had said to him, oh, no, we'd, if, you know, if he'd had the naysayers that kind of um, edited it into something else that wasn't his vision, then. Um, maybe mm. it wouldn't have been so popular because it's that. Anyway, I think that's these are that one of the interesting things we came across um, in the making of the TV series is that we'd called one of the series we make, which is um, we're busy now getting started on the second season. Um, we'd called it African Evil, and now they took the series up to Cannes to 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 get you know to sell it and to get some interest. And um, the feedback, particularly from African broadcasters was that they didn't like the title African Evil because there was an, there's an implication there that Africa is evil as opposed to mm. well like you know for this particular series this is very much the evil within Africa this is African Evil and I and I my argument was that you know part of the unique selling point is the fact that it's African and that's our thing you know it's a, nobody everyone's heard you know again I continue to watch like this new show on Netflix um um where they're covering Green River Killer and BTK. It's like uh, the millionth documentary I've seen on these serial mm. killers. And it's like, no one's seen anything yet still really on Stuart Vulcan, for example, who is, to me, one of the most kind of 
legend, you know, if you mm. if you look kind of put him next to a Jeffrey Dahmer or if you put him next to a, a BTK, he kind of like from he could a, sit at the same table and hold his weight. From a mix, he can sit at the same table and hold his weight from a kind of lots of psychological issues mm. and a lot going on there and a lot of interest to be garnered out of somebody like him. And um, yeah, so we've got these just wonderful. Anyway, we've got these great stories to tell, mm. and um, so the idea was that it be called African Evil, and we've had to change the name to take out that kind of reference just because Africans are so, and I understand it, but just so sensitive of, of anything with a negative connotation. Africa is And it there. kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that we need to, you know, it's that when, I think when you own the good and the bad, like I mm. say, you start to establish an, a sense of a relationship with your audience, which is different, where they where they trust that they're going to get the truth, whether it's mm. good or bad. And so the you know that authenticity and that honesty with the audience, I think, in the digital age, is something that you know people respond. You know, it's what gets an audience mm. to respond to something because then they're like, okay, well, you know, they're not just kind of um, putting a, 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 a glossy sheen over everything. They're willing to own up to their, their shortcomings as well. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like and and part of my motivation, and let's be honest, you know, if we're just going to be blunt about it, we're in Africa and or in South Africa, which is a country which is renowned for its crime. Let's be honest, mm. um, you know, every anywhere in the world, you know, if you go, you know, you've heard about Hillbrow, and you know, you shouldn't go there, mm. uh, you know, at one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. Um, not that you should. I mean, you can't. I'm not dissing Hellbride. It's just a bit dangerous. You know, you'd know better not to, rather. Anyway, so we had to change the name from African Evil to something a little bit more um, neutral just because uh, folks were like, just didn't want to put it out there because they feel it had a... Which I, you know, I didn't entirely agree with. But, hey, I'm not... Um, I'm a, I just, mm. just want to sell TV shows and make great content and sell TV shows and have people all over the world hearing our stories, to be honest. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to dig my heels with something like that. Digging my heels on, with regards mm. to something like that too much. Um, okay, so generally speaking, then Gerald, I think uh, happy. You know, you've had a great experience with this first book. It's been a yeah. success in South African terms. Yes. Yeah, and I, I hope the second one, which is going to be seven chapters of cases, six or seven chapters. Um, you know, it won't have the introductory chapters that the first the first book had, which was the bit about me and how I got into profiling, and then. Profiling serial murder in South Africa, which was chapter one and two of the first book. So um, it'll have just cases. So for people who really just are more interested in hearing about the cases than about me or serial murder in general, you'll have one, two, three, four, five, six, six. six well, we're going to get into that in the next episode because in the next episode, we're actually going to talk about your second book and we're going to st- talk about a little bit more about crime, actual crimes in the next episode mm-hmm. where we'll touch on some of the cases. Um, and some of the interesting stories um, that um, you were thinking about when you were putting your second book together. Mm. Um, well done on the first book, Jared. Thank Jared, you. Really well done. And um, you know, I know that I know that these days, because those two TV series aren't on anymore, that that you're kind of being recognised in the streets has waned a little. You know, when you're at coffee shops and what have you. In Pretoria. I, <laughs> I promise that I promise that we're doing our best to put you in TV shows so that so that. We really up the ante on that for you again. I'd like you to be like a familiar face in every home in the I country. I don't know if that's a great thing. Or, yeah. um, telling great stories about... I'd rather be a familiar name than a face. <laughs> no, Joe, trust me. Trust me. I used to be on TV. There are fringe benefits to being on TV on a regular basis. But I am 
deeply aware of. And I promise they're good ones. Um, Jared, thank you for the chat. Um, it's always lovely to see you. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, please do go out and get Jared's books. The, pro- the book, The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist. It's available. Yeah, the exclusive books, bargain books, loot, take a lot. I think exclusive books, websites, and a lot of independent shops or bookshops um, also have. So. Would have been a lovely Valentine's gift, but we've missed that. Um, so yeah, just Easter coming up. There we you go. Easter coming up. We got lovely, lovely gift. Um, Fridays is a good you reason. You know what I was thinking? It. Maybe there's a gap in the market for for kids' true crime books. Something to think mm-hmm. about. Hey. Hmm, something to think about. Um, thank you very much for listening. We will be back um, with more episodes, so please do um, continue to listen to the podcast, Profiler Africa. Please do get in touch. Um, we, you know, we're on social media and what have you. You just have to go and search for Profiler Africa. Please do share the podcast um, and have a listen. Um, it is something, we, like I say, we're going to be a lot more consistent about putting out episodes now and give you guys a whole bunch of new content to listen to. Um, if anyone wants to get involved in any of the stuff that you can see that we're really trying to create a true crime empire here, uh, <laughs> a true crime media empire, um, we are doing other things as well other than crime because I think I would start be starting to go nuts if I wasn't doing at least one other type of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, we are doing like one lifestyle show, which is a lovely little mental breather every now and again but um, if you'd like to get involved in anything if you want to invest in what we're doing if you want to find out more about what we're doing then drop us um, you know get in touch with us on social media if you would like to get if you'd like to contribute to what we're doing or if you'd like to give us any input or suggestions on what it is that we're doing then please do get in touch with us um, you can get in touch with us via social media again we're on instagram or twitter at profiler africa um, also do kind of send us I, I do read, get your messages on Facebook for example and although I've been ignoring them for the last year I promise I will con- not continue to um, to be that guy just being a bit busy um, so please do contribute let us know your feedback let us know your thoughts and uh, we look forward to making a whole stack of new shows and to sharing some really wonderful authentic African stories and to sharing with you some of the stories of some of these amazing professionals and amazing former cops and experts that I've now had the opportunity to interact with who are just just some of the most interesting people um, I've ever met really to be honest with you thank you Gerard um, we shall um, pleasure meet again Great stuff. and um, yeah sleep easy folks mm-hmm.